know me. I'm feeling a little left heavy this morning, so I'll just sit like this a little bit. <laughs> well, this morning we're going to be in Genesis 24. Thank you. Yes, even it out. No, that's better. I can scan. All right, so this morning we're going to be in Genesis 24. So if you have your scripture journals, grab that. If you have your, your Bible, open that up. If, uh, if not, we have multiple Bibles spread around on the chairs here. Just grab one. Open it up to Genesis 24. We've been working through the book of Genesis now for quite a while, and I haven't actually checked, but I think this actually could be the longest chapter in Genesis. So buckle up. 67 verses, I think. Right, Ruth? Yeah. So what we're going to be in this morning is actually, um, it's a really cool story. Genesis, at least the part we're in right now, do you guys remember what type of genre it is? It's narrative. Narrative. So it's a story. It's basically telling us events that happened, right? And we've seen that as we've been working through Abraham's life. We're now towards the tail end of Abraham's life. And we're basically getting an an account of, of what happened toward the end of Abraham's life. He's getting ready. Uh, to kick the can, and there's a couple things getting kind of set up before, um, before he disappears off the scene that God wants us to know, and then he preserved for us. And so what we're going to hear this morning, it's important for us to process it as hearing it as it's a story. It's a story of something that really happened, a story with real people that really lived, like you and me. It's not made up, um, but it is a story. It's like we're, we're, we're hearing a narrative. We're hearing a narrator. Moses is writing this down, and we're hearing it um, spoken out to us. And so I think it's important before we even get into it for us to remember, how do we approach this type of genre of Scripture? How do we approach a passage that is narrative like this? It's tempting to say, okay, we're reading the Bible. So when we read about Abraham, the point is we must just do everything that Abraham does. You know, like pick a hero in the story and say, okay, the point is we're supposed to be like that person. Is that correct, though? Not necessarily. In fact, most of the time, the answer is, no, that's not correct. That person is a sinner. And though it's written down in Scripture, yes, it's written down in Scripture as the accounts that happened, what a sinful person did in history. And so as we're hearing this morning, I want you to be processing not just thinking about the human characters in the story, which are flawed, and what they are doing may be right or might be wrong. We need to determine that. But I want you to be listening for God. Where is God in this story? What's the story telling us about God? Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to listen to the story being read, and it's a long story. It's a well-written story. It's interesting. It's got a lot of details in it that are great for us to hear, but I really need you, I'm going to encourage you, try to pay attention. Try not to check out. It's very easy for us, especially in just hearing something read, just to be thinking about later on today. Maybe you have to put your phone, turn it over, put it underneath the underneath the chair, whatever it is, to try to eliminate distractions. Let's slow down a little bit together, and let's listen to the story as it's being read. Uh, Renee's going to come up first, so go ahead and invite her to come up. She's going to read the first half of the story for us this morning. As she's reading, I want you guys to be thinking, what is this story telling me about who God is, what he's done, or what he's going to do? Okay, so as we're hearing this read to us, and we have characters coming and going, and we have dialogues going on, be thinking still in the back of your mind, who is God, what has he done, and what's he going to do in this story? Everybody with me? Genesis 24. Take it away. All right. 
Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar, that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance and a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all of his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, 
Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. Thank you. All right, everybody still awake? Still tracking? Understand kind of what's going on with the story? James, go ahead and put up that first slide that I have. That might help us as we go through the second, second half of the story here. So we have a couple new characters introduced, but just so we're all picturing what's going on, sometimes it's hard to read. He's the father of the brother of the cousin thing going on. So Abraham, right in the middle there, his father, Terah, he had uh, two brothers. Abraham had two brothers. One was Haran, who died early, is the father of Lot. That's why Lot traveled with Abraham. The other brother of Abraham was Nahor, on the right side there. Nahor had a son, Bethuel, we heard about him, and then Bethuel had a daughter, Rebekah, and Laban, her brother. So the ones bolded there are the people that so far have been read in the story that we're going to be hearing about this morning. Good? All right, should we continue on? All right, let's keep going. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son, from my clan, and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. 
He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you very much. Before we start, I just want to uh, remind us yet again, this is the word of the Lord. We just said that, but this is the word of the Lord. Just think for just a moment how this has been preserved for us for millennia. Think about the fires that could have wiped it out and the wars that could have happened. And yet a copy of this word has been preserved from us, from the patriarch, from the time of Abraham. That story has been preserved and then written down by Moses and then kept and kept and kept again. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. Um, that's not just so happened or because people were really good with history because the God of the universe wanted you to hear this story this morning. Do you believe that? God wanted you to hear this story this morning. And I want to share with you, church, that as I was studying this passage, I was telling Jordan this some this morning, I really believe that God gave me, um, gave me a message, gave me the words that he wanted me to share here this morning for you. I felt like my heart was moved from initially reading that story through praying through it and meditating on it to where I have a burden, I have a, um, a joy to be able to share this message with you this morning. But I also feel um, uniquely inadequate to try to convince you uh, to change your hearts to believe um, what I think God would have us to believe. But that's really good because that's not my job. I don't have to convince anyone's hearts. So what I would like you to do is just join me in prayer. And I encourage you, let's be expectant for God to do something inside of us this morning. Let's expect his word to transform us. Just pray with me. God, we just pause here for a moment. We take your word very seriously. We thank you for the gift it is to us. And we thank you that it's not just your word, but it comes along with your Holy Spirit that gives us understanding, conviction, correction, and instruction. And Lord, we need it. And so Lord, I pray this morning that you would meet us for just the next few minutes as we go through your word here, and I pray that you would change our hearts. I pray that you would give us fresh faith. 
pray that you would build the faith of Christ's church and that you would grow our knowledge of the truth. Please, Lord, don't let us leave here the same as we came. Please use me this morning in any way you see fit and protect my words as I speak. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so let me just do a quick overview of the story because I've read it a thousand times and you've heard it read now once um, just to make sure that we're all kind of on the same page of what the main, the main events are. So um, last chapter that we studied, chapter 23, Sarah had just died. Abraham's wife, Sarah, right? She's been along for a long time. She gave birth to Isaac in her old age and she has just died. Um, now we would say that Abraham is probably on the order of 140 years old. So he's getting up there. Isaac is probably around 40 years old, something like that. And um, Abraham does not want Isaac to marry a wife, a Canaanite woman. So if you remember, Abraham, God led him out of his homeland of Ur and brought him to uh, the land of Canaan. And so that's where Abraham is dwelling now. It's where his family is dwelling as well. Um, But the Canaanite people, we have to remember even further back, they're actually descendants of Ham, from uh, Noah's household, and they were actually cursed, if you remember that. They were cursed because of Ham's wickedness, and really throughout Genesis and and, um, old history in the Bible, the Canaanites are always sort of representing wickedness, evil people, pagans. And so Abraham does not want his, his son Isaac to take a Canaanite wife, but he also is really adamant that he does not want Isaac to go back to his homeland either. Do you notice that? He wants to send his servant. His servant is like, well, if the woman doesn't come back with me, can I just take Isaac along and we'll go to your home country? And Abraham is adamant and says no. And the reason that Abraham says no is that Abraham sees that as going against the promise that God's given him. God has given him the land, the inheritance. This is where Isaac The seed of Abraham is supposed to be and continue to dwell. And so for Isaac to leave that and go dwell somewhere else, maybe even be tempted to dwell somewhere else, Abraham sees as a non-starter. So that's no good. So what Abraham does is he commissions his oldest servant that he has, the one that would be over his whole house. Maybe he's been with Abraham for many decades at this point. And he sends him instead back to Abraham's brother, hopefully, hoping that he's there still, and to go get a wife for Isaac, and to bring that wife back, um, back to Isaac. The servant goes, as Abraham instructs him, and miraculously finds Rebekah. We'll get into that a little bit, but it really is a miraculous thing, that he finds Rebekah. And then even more miraculous, Rebekah and her family just immediately agree to the marriage, say this is from God, and Rebekah, in fact, the next morning agrees to leave everything she's known, kind of like Abraham did, right? Leave everything she's known, go with effectively a stranger, to go marry someone that she hasn't met yet um, many, many miles away. And as they're on their way back, the camel caravan is coming back, and lo and behold, it just so happens that Isaac is out meditating in the field and happens to be the first person that Rebekah sees from Abraham's household as they're returning. Abraham, or Isaac loves Rebekah. They get married, um, and it actually says that Isaac is comforted by Rebekah as well. So this is probably a couple years after Sarah has died, but it seems like, like we heard Abraham mourning in the previous chapter, Isaac seems like is still mourning the death of his mother even now. Um, but he is comforted by God um, through his wife, Rebecca. So that's kind of the overall story. Go ahead and pop up our, um, our family tree one more time, just to make sure that's in our, in our head. So everybody tracking the main story, the main characters here. So Rebecca and Isaac, those are the two that we're mostly talking about here. But we'll also hear from Laban, who's uh, Rebecca's brother, and Bethuel, who's Rebecca's dad. We don't hear from him as much, so it's likely that he's maybe 
kind of older, incapacitated or something like that. He's there, but he seems like he's mostly represented by Laban. Okay, so that's the story. What we're going to do this morning then is I think there's really, there's multiple, but there's at least three truths about God. Remember, as we were listening to the story, we were trying to think through, what's this story telling me about God? What about his character? What applies to us today in God who is unchanging, the same God of Abraham that's our God this morning? I think there's three main truths about God in this story. And so we're just going to work through those three things pretty quickly this morning and show how we today, thousands and thousands of years later, can still enjoy those and can grow our faith through them as well. All right, everybody with me? All right, let's start with point number one. Get your pen out. If you're not taking notes, you should be. No, just kidding. Just kidding. All right, point number one. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. In case you need a little help, let me tell you why I see that in this passage. We kind of already hit on some of it, but I mean, for starters, Abraham is 140 years old. So we've, you know, sort of a reoccurring theme in Genesis up to this point, but that's a miraculous thing in itself. A man is 140 years old, still being preserved and blessed by God. The servant makes a 550-mile, one-way journey. So about a 20-day journey when he took those 10 camels and was going to find Abraham's kinsmen, his family, he was heading off for a 20-mile journey to a city that maybe he'd never even been to before. And when he gets there, he arrives at the exact right city where Abraham's brother had settled down and where Abraham's family was. So let's settle in for a minute. That would be like me saying, uh, hey, Jim, remember the Grotties when they were here? Okay, what I want you to do is tomorrow, when you, I want you to get up, grab a couple other people. You can't use a GPS or your phone or your car. I want you to go walk to Charleston, South Carolina, go to their house and tell them that you want to send Jackson to come back here. I want to tell him something. Just like imagine that. Go walk to Charleston, South Carolina. No phones, can't call ahead. You don't even know if they're still there. You don't know what house they're in, right? Go there and go knock on the door and uh, tell them that we want to send Jackson back. That's like the magnitude of what was happening here. And we at least have roads and that kind of makes sense and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they, they didn't even have that. So they're walking across the desert to go find a city 20, mile, or 20 days away, 550 miles away. When he does get there to that city, Rebecca is the very first lady that comes out. And then what's even more miraculous is Rebecca says what was inside of the servant's mind just moments before. Did you pick up on that part? He was thinking in his head, the woman that says this thing about the camels, she's going to be the one. Okay, okay. And as he finished thinking that thought, he didn't even say it out loud. As he finished thinking that thought, the first woman that comes out is not only eligible, but she's also from the correct household, and she says the special camel passcode. <laughs> then her whole family welcomes them and immediately says, this thing is from God. We are God-fearing, and we believe that this is a good thing. We can't say to you yes or no. It seems like this is something that's going to happen because of God. These are family members that had probably never even met before. We didn't learn until Abraham sacrificed Isaac. At that point, he didn't even know if his brother had any children at all. So this is probably people that they've never even interacted together before, ever. She immediately consents to marriage. She agrees to leave her home the very next day. And like we already mentioned, Isaac is the first person that she sees. Who's that guy that happens to be walking around in the field? Oh, that's your, that's your future husband. And their eyes contact there. Can you not see that God is clearly orchestrating all these events? 
how God is sovereign on this. I love hearing stories about how people met. Like, oh, how did you guys first meet? Oh, that's so cute. Oh, this is a funny thing. Blah, blah, blah. Can you imagine this story? Let me tell you. Sit down. We're going to work through a couple, a couple verses here, but let me tell you how we met. This is God on the move, doing work in amazing ways in his sovereign will. God is in complete control here. God is orchestrating the timeline. He's orchestrating the people where they are. He's even orchestrating what people are thinking and what other people are saying. God is in complete control. God is sovereign. And the connection, I hope, is pretty obvious, is that God is in complete control of our lives as well. God is still sovereign. The same God that we're reading about here is sovereign right now in the same way. Colossians 1.17, I think we have that to pop up on the screen. We've been through this before. This is talking about Jesus. It says, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God, Jesus in particular, is literally holding everything together right now. The universe, the fabric of your being, your heart and your lungs beating. He's holding you right now. God is sovereign and he's in control. And yet, I love from this story as well that we take away, is that God's in control of everything, but we don't get the picture that everybody's just marionette puppets or robots working around. God is in complete control, utilizing and involved with people's wills and their plans and their thoughts. It's kind of a cool picture, and we don't think about that. A lot of times we say God's in control, and people immediately go to, well, God's not controlling me right now. But see, that's a smaller picture of God. The God that we worship and celebrate this morning, God is in complete and sovereign control over people involving their thoughts and their minds and their emotions and their plans. Let's just like think through this for a little bit. The servant had to choose how to get where he was going. He had to navigate. He had to use a map or stars or whatever he was using to get there. He had the plan. We're going to leave at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. We're going to go 24 miles today and 22 miles the next day. He was using his brain. He was making decisions. Do we go right or do, do we go left here? Do we ford the stream? Do we not? And yet he arrived at exactly the right point in time at the right place. Think about Rebecca. She got up that morning and went to go, or that evening, I guess, to go get some water from the well, maybe like she always does. But did she choose to go get water from the well that night? Yeah, she did. She was using her will. She was doing what maybe was a habit for her family or what she commonly did. But that was part of God's sovereign plan as well. You see, God is sovereignly in control of everything that we do involving our thoughts and our plans and our minds and our words even, even what the servant was thinking, God supernaturally gave Rebecca the words to speak. She spoke them, but God gave her those words to speak. And that makes me just think about how many things around us right now are going on that we just assume is, oh, that's just me doing that. That's not God. And not seeing God as over and in everything that we're doing. He is sovereign. He's completely in control of everything. I was thinking about some application and just saying, well, if God could make the servant meet Rebecca 550 miles across the desert, then do I think he can handle maybe me trying to find a job? If God could cause Rebecca to speak the words that the servant was silently thinking, could God give me the words that I need to speak to my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus or give me the wisdom that I need to direct my children as I'm parenting? If God could do this, and is involved in that sovereignly, then certainly he's involved sovereignly in what I do every day. 
and it's in control. And that takes a major burden off of our shoulders. So I just would ask you the question, do you believe that God is in control? Do you believe he's sovereign? Do you believe he's sovereign over your income, over the words that you need to speak to someone? Do you believe he's sovereign over your children? Do you believe he's sovereign over your health in your time of death? Christ Church, you can trust in God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. It's who he is. And we're not, and we don't have to be. We can rest in his sovereignty. That's a glorious thing that we can celebrate. All right, point number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Something that's been driving everything uh, in the story of Abraham from the very beginning, from the first interaction with God and Abraham, is that God has made promises to Abraham. He first called him out. He says, I will make you great into a great nation. And he later says that he's going to give him descendants greater than the number of stars in the heavens. And he tells him even explicitly, it's going to be through Isaac, your son, that you're going to have descendants. Everything that God has done for Abraham, in fact, by way of blessing, is all fulfilling a promise or another that God has made to Abraham. God has told Abraham he's going to do something, and maybe not the way that Abraham expects it, God does do it. And we see in this story multiple promises fulfilled and some even partially in the process of being fulfilled. So just as an example, God promised Abraham that he would have land and be great. God said to Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude of people. Well, at this time, Abraham's wife is barren. Abraham is not great. He doesn't have a lot of land. This is back when he was in Ur. And now we see that, that God says that Isaac would carry on the family line, and yet Isaac is a 40-year-old bachelor with no, no wife or fiancé in sight, so it seems. A lesser God would have failed at this point. Just think about that. I think that's the point. I think the point of God making a promise and then fulfilling it in a way that only God can fulfill it is God saying, no one else can take credit for this. I'm the one fulfilling this promise. It didn't just happen to happen that this 90-year-old woman got pregnant after being barren her entire life. This clearly has to be me. It's God on the work. It's God fulfilling his promises. He's sovereign, but he sovereignly keeps his promises that he makes to his people. He ensures that his promises will stand, and he normally does it in extraordinary ways. So verse 34, we just see the fulfillment of a couple of the promises I just mentioned. This is where the servant is talking. In verse 34, the, the servant says this, The Lord has greatly blessed my master. He has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver, gold, male servants, female servants, camels, and donkeys. God has answered his promise or has fulfilled his promise to Abraham that he would be great. If we keep reading, the servant then shows how God answered another promise in 36. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given him all that he has. Promise number one, Abraham will be great. God answered that. Promise two, God would give him a son. Check, he did that as well. And now what about promise number three, that God is going to, the seed of Abraham will continue through Isaac. Isaac has no wife. And what we see in this story this morning is we see the answer to that as well that God provides a wife for Isaac, but he does it in a way that only God could. And this morning for us, I think the encouragement is that God has made promises to us as well. Just as God has made promises to Abraham, 
And we see those fulfilled. God made promises to me and to you as believers in Jesus Christ. I'm going to put a couple of these up on the screen. Let this build our faith. Be thinking about this. This is God. The first one is Isaiah 41.10. See if we have that. Yeah. Fear not. This is God speaking. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a promise to you, Christ Church. That's a promise to you this morning. Those of us in Jesus, those words apply to me and to you. And just as God fulfilled his promises for Abraham and Isaac, the same God fulfills those promises for us today as well. So let's know these promises. Let's believe them and trust them. Another promise I picked out, Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God who started a good work inside of you, he is going to complete it. He's not going to railroad you or just stop you off at this point and say, oh, I don't know, we, went, we gave it a good run, but this one's not going to work out. God is going to complete the good work that he started in you. His spirit has been planted inside of you. You've been sealed. You've been marked. You are his, and he is going to bring it to completion. Christ Church, believe that promise. Our God is a promise-keeping God. The last one, Titus 1-2. In hope of eternal life, that's for us, the believers. So we have hope of eternal life, which God, I love this part, who never lies, promised before the ages began. We have a promise of eternal life, salvation for the believers. And Paul just drives his point home to make sure you know, God's the one that made the promise. And by the way, in case you're worried, God never lies. Don't you love that? God never lies. He doesn't keep promises the way we do. I, I always hate it when you're watching a movie um, and you know, the dad's leaving for a dangerous journey. He says, I promise I'll be back. I'm like, you don't know if you're going to be back. How can you promise that? You're going to break this kid's heart, you know? God is not like that. God doesn't make promises that he can't keep or might keep. He's just going to try really hard to keep. God is sovereign over everything. So when he makes a promise, the promise happens. We can rely on God's promises. We can trust in God's promises. We can enjoy God's promises for us. So let's believe them. All right, so God is sovereign. God is a promise keeper. And number three. God shows steadfast love to his people. God shows steadfast love to his people. We're going to go to verse 14 of the passage here. Notice what attribute of God the servant appeals to. I love this part. This is like one of the hardest verses I kind of felt like to wrestle with a little bit, but also one of the sweetest. Verse 14 is when the servant is praying to God. He's basically kind of seems like he's making a deal with God. In verse 14, look at what he appeals to, to God. It's very end of the verse, by this. See the last sentence in that verse there? By this I shall know that you have shown, what does he say? Say it again. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Don't move too quickly over that. If you were pleading with God of the cosmos to do something for you and say, if you do this, then I will know that you... Fill in the blank. What would you normally put in there if you were talking to the all-powerful God? Wouldn't you say, by this, I'll know that you really are powerful. Or by this, I will know that you can hear me right now. Or by this, I will know that you are the most cunning or the swiftest or the, the greatest. 
But that's not what the servant appeals to. See, church, the God that we serve, he's not like the gods made by just human hands or imagination. God's hallmark characteristic is that he is love. What? The sovereign God who orchestrated time and place and people and creation. His hallmark trademark characteristic, one of his greatest attributes, is that he is steadfast in his love to his people. That's what the servant is appealing to. God, I'll know your steadfast love when you do this. And God's love, notice the steadfastness piece. It's not just a temporary love or a dwindling love or a superficial love or a love for the next 227 years. It is steadfast. It's complete. It's permanent. It's unending. It can't be changed. It can't be diminished because it's completely infinite. Everything God is doing for Abraham the promises, the miracles, the blessings, all of it stems because God has placed his love on Abraham. God has placed his steadfast love on Abraham and Abraham's descendants and said, I am choosing to love you. I am placing my infinitely great, infinitely endless love on you, Abraham. And here come the blessings, and here come the promises, and here come the miracles. It all comes from God's steadfast love. He is a God of love to his people. And this morning, God has rested his steadfast love on you. On you. God has rested his steadfast love on you this morning in the same way that he has rested it on Abraham. That same unending, can't give up, infinite love is on you this morning. And we don't just have to take God's word for it either. On this side of the cross, boy, do we have evidence or what? That God loves us. Romans 5, we put that passage up. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But check this out. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has told us that he loves us, and God has demonstrated that he loves us by giving us his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. What greater act of love is there than that? Do you need any more evidence that God is, in fact, a God of love to his people, that his love is steadfast? when we were in our sins, when we were without hope, when we were opposed to him, hating God, he reached down by his grace and his mercy and he put all of his wrath on his son who did nothing ever wrong. He bore all the wrath on our behalf, willingly because he loved us, to demonstrate his love for us as an act of love for us. And he purchased us and he rested his love on us for all of eternity and now we are his children forever. Our God is a God of steadfast love. And really, this is kind of the, the bow that ties everything together because this morning, for me, if God is sovereign and God is a promise keeper, those may be good news but might not be good news depending on what side of God I'm on this morning. But you tie that up with God is steadfast in love toward me. Well, now I have a promise-keeping, infinitely great, powerful, sovereign God who loves me infinitely. Whew. And that's us this morning, church. That's us. 
And I encourage you, believe God's love. The application is believe it. Trust it. See the evidence in Genesis. See the evidence on the cross. Believe in God's love. I would say the point of these three things, if we put them all together, is so we can believe God. We can believe God. Because of what we read in the story this morning, and I hope you do, we can grow even more in our belief, in our faith, in our trust in God. He's sovereign. He's a promise keeper. All those promises he's going to keep. And there's many more, by the way. And he loves you. He loves you. Before we close, I just want to go through a couple of the characters in this story because I can't help doing that. Oftentimes when we're working through um, Genesis at least, but really stories in the Bible, oftentimes um, you see a lot of examples of what not to do. See a lot of examples of how not to be faithful, even in Abraham's life. We've seen that now multiple times, right? Even just a few chapters of Genesis we've been in. The cool thing with this story, could be wrong, but I think every single character, I think, acted faithfully toward God in this story. It doesn't happen that often, and I obviously don't know their hearts in this, but based on just their actions and the narrative that we're given, I think every person in this story basically acted out of faith toward God in one way or another. It's a pretty happy story. even has a good ending. So God is in control. He's a promise keeper. He's steadfast in his love for us. And the more we believe this, the more our lives will show it. And so what we'll do is I just have three examples from the story where we see people that believed the attributes we just talked about, the characteristics, the truth about who God is, and then what they did. They responded in some way. They believed it enough that their, their lives reflected it and changed and did something because of what they believed. I think that could be an encouragement for us. So let's just look at three. I had way more, so I had to pare it down. Um, but I have, I have three for us this morning. The first one, you probably can write these down. Abraham believed by not compromising. Abraham believed by not compromising. Abraham did not want Isaac to take a Canaanite wife. That was important to him. He believed that that was right for God to do. We don't hear in this passage if God says yes or no to that, but certainly it was what Abraham believed God had told him to do, is do not take a Canaanite wife, and he did not want Isaac to leave the land of his inheritance either. And we've seen Abraham in the past compromise, right? Have we seen Abraham take matters into his own hands and just kind of bend to help, try to help God out a little bit and end it in disaster? Maybe toward the end of Abraham's life, maybe his faith is a little bit greater. Maybe he believes God and trusts him a little bit more by this point. And we don't see him compromising and saying, well, how about we just get the nice Canaanite wife to come? Or Isaac, you go out of the promised land, but just come back in five to ten years. He doesn't do any of that. He's unwilling to compromise. He will not let his servant take Isaac with him. And I think that can be an encouragement to us as well. When we believe God as sovereign, as promise keeper, then we're not going to compromise on what he's told us to do. He's sovereign. He's going to do what he said. I don't have to make things happen on my own. I don't have to compromise. Number two, the servant believed by praying expectantly. The servant believed God by praying expectantly. I'm going to dwell here for just a moment and unpack this because the servant seems to put God to the test with his prayer, doesn't he? Doesn't it just kind of feel a little bit like, ugh, that doesn't seem how you're supposed to pray. I, I wasn't taught I'm supposed to do that. He's almost kind of feel like he's making like a deal with God. If you 
have this woman say these special words about the camel watering, then I'll know that you've shown steadfast love to Abraham and my journey was a success. Kind of feels, I don't know, a little icky. And I read even a couple commentaries that said, well, this really wasn't the good way for the servant to pray, but God was gracious enough to answer him anyway. And that, that could be, that might be true. But I actually think there's a little bit more to this than that. I would say that this is different than me praying, all right, God, if you want me to get a red truck, then let there be a red light when I get up to it. If you want me to have a green truck, then let there be a green light when I get up to the stop sign. I think this is a different prayer than that. I think that would be putting God to the test. That would be like a, you know, a magic eight ball God. But I'm not sure that's what the servant is doing here. Because think about the servant. The servant has been commissioned by the representative of God. Effectively, God has told this servant, you are going on a mission. You are going on a mission for my purposes. And Abraham told him, God's spirit, his angel, is going to be with you on this journey and will grant you success. It's a little different than the green truck, red truck prayer. I would say that this servant is instead, he is on mission sent by God with God's spirit with him. And he is ready to act and he knows that he needs help if he's going to take that next step for the mission that God has told him he's on and he will be successful in. And I think, or at least a possibility that I would propose is that I think the servant might be praying in faith for what God is going to do. He's praying with full faith that God is going to answer him and then he's ready to act right away. He lifts up his eyes after praying and there's a woman and he says the words to her and she says the magic words. He pulls his jaw off the floor and watches her as she waters the camels and immediately does everything that Abraham had told him to do. So I actually think that I would say that, no, this servant believed God by praying expectantly. And I think about that for us, different than the red truck, green truck prayer, I think it's more like, Lord, I'm walking out to the yard, and my neighbor's out right now, and he doesn't know you. And I don't know what words I'm supposed to say to him right now, but I know that you've sent me on gospel mission right now, and I know you've placed me on Buffalo Road next to this neighbor for a reason. And I'm trusting you right now to give me the words that I need when I speak to him. Here I go. I think it's a prayer like that. I think it's a prayer in faith. I'm, I need you to do what you told me to do, but you told me to do it, and you're a promise-keeping sovereign God, so it's going to happen. So here I go. I think it's that type of a prayer. And so that would be my encouragement of how this faith is worked out or how his belief is worked out. The servant believed God by praying expectantly. And I think we can pray to God expectantly as well, expecting him to do something. When we're praying according to his promises, according to his mission that he sent us on, boy, you better watch out because I think God will answer those prayers. We know he will. He's going to do it. He will accomplish his work. Third one. Rebecca believed by serving. Now, we don't really get really much said about Rebecca's heart in this, so I'm, I am connecting a couple dots of just a, of her behavior. But I would say on that alone, it seems as though Rebecca believed God by the way she served, the way she was hospitable. Rebecca, from the very beginning when we meet her, she has a servant's heart. She's hospitable. She's quick to recognize, it seems, that this is God's work, that something is going on here. I love this part. I was just looking at some of the action words for Rebecca. Um, I highlighted them in mind. It's kind of hard probably to pick it out. But in um, verse 18, it says that she quickly let down her jar upon her hand. 
Um, in verse 19 or 20, it says, So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough. In verse 20 again, it says, She ran into the well to draw water. Let me just set the context for this a little bit, too, because don't you guys know a whole lot about camels? Side note, this is the camel capital of the Bible, by the way, where we are right now. This passage of Scripture uses the camel about ten times more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. Fun fact. A third of all the camels mentioned in the entire Bible are in this chapter. <laughs> so we got to talk about camels this morning. <laughs> a camel can drink conservatively around 30 gallons of water. Up to 50, by the way, if it's really thirsty. 30 gallons. Okay, that's like my truck fuel tank. Just think about that. And that's like in a couple minutes it can drink 30 gallons. How many camels did the servant go with? 10. So say using the 30-gallon number, how many gallons of water is that? 300. That's all right. Shout it out. Don't be afraid. 300 gallons. She drew 300 gallons from this well, and she was running while she did it. I'd be like, all right, that one's not going to drink today, right? (laughs) Good enough. She was a servant, and right away, she was willing to be interrupted for what she was doing. I am sure she had something else to do that evening after she got back home. That servant was there, complete stranger, and the moment he shows up, She's hospitable, she's respectful, she culturally does the right things, it seems, and she serves him selflessly. And I think that that is a mark of faithfulness in God as well. Because we're free to serve other people. We're free to let ourselves down, to humble ourselves when we recognize that I don't need to put myself up on top of another person to survive. I don't need to accomplish my goals on top of another person or manipulate them or push them aside or accomplish my plans in order for me to be happy or to succeed. I'm resting in the sovereign promise-keeping God who loves me. I'm free to serve you right now. If you come and interrupt my plans for the rest of the day, I'm free to stop those plans and serve you if God would lead me because he's got control of my life. He's got me in his hand. He loves me with steadfast love. And we're free to serve in the same way. When we really believe God as the sovereign, promise-keeping, steadfast, loving God, then we can serve others freely, completely, lovingly, happily, because we're not relying on other people to build us up or to accomplish our goals or as pawns that we need to use uh, to do our purposes. So I'd summarize this up by just saying, belief is the natural response to God if he really is who he says he is. If God really is who he says he is, if he really is who's captured in chapter 24 of Genesis, then I think the right response for us, the natural response even, is belief. We'll we'll trust him. We'll do what he says if we really believe him. One more point before we close. I couldn't Help but include this as well. I love this part of the servant. Man, the servant here, he's killing it. Wish he had a name. I'd use his name. Just call him servant. I would say, lastly, an important response to God that's demonstrated in this passage is worship. Did you pick that up, what the servant does? The servant, a couple times, yeah. When he first sees Rebecca, when Rebecca comes out, she says the camel code. What does he do? Boom! He's down. He worships. He gets down low on the ground. 
As soon as he recognizes God answered that prayer, I was just thinking that in my head, and she just said it, and she's the daughter of the, what the, boom, down. Worshiping God, getting low. And just in case you need a refresher, it doesn't mean that he pulled out a guitar and started singing, you know, I worship you, almighty God, or something like that. Worship is that he got low on the ground. It means he was like this. This is worship. See me? Get up if you can't see me. This is worship. Worship is to get low before Almighty God, both in our hearts, but also in our bodies, in our lives. It's putting ourselves down and saying, God, whoa, whoa, you are, whoa, you are mighty. You are, I am not worthy in getting down low before him. It's a sacrificial work in ourselves. It's saying, I'm laying down everything that I have because of your greatness. And that's what the servant does. The moment that he sees just a little bit behind the curtain of God working. God is sovereign. He's always working. But there's definitely times in our lives where we're like, oh, whoa, whoa, you're bigger than I realized. Or wow, you, you are here right now and I didn't even see it. Boom, get down. He does it again as well, right? He goes and he talks to her family and at this point, we don't even know if the marriage is going to happen or if they're going to be okay with her coming back. All that is still up in the air. And the moment that he says, oh, the moment that her family says, this is from the Lord, what can we say? This is clearly from God. Of course, she can go back with you as Isaac's wife. What does he do again? He bows down again. He bows down, he blesses the Lord, and he worships. He gets down low. And I would encourage us this morning, church, I think we could do a little bit more of that. We talk about it in our hearts, and I hope it is in our hearts. And culturally, it's a little bit weird, but I actually would say that I think a right response to the Almighty God of the universe is for us to literally get down low. Maybe when we're gathered like this, maybe just at your house, maybe just when you're praying, but anytime that we're hit with the reality of who God is once again, the natural response should be in our hearts first, but then through the rest of our life as well, is, whoa, get down low before God. Worship him. Worship him. See him as God. See him as sovereign and inasmuch us not sovereign. And I hope that we can do that. I hope that that is a right response for us. So I would say two responses for us in this case, based on what we've heard this morning, is to believe God really for who he is and to worship him. Summarize it like this. I think we have the the word up there. God is sovereign, is a promise keeper, and loves me. So I will believe and worship him. God is sovereign. He's a promise keeper and he loves me. So I will believe and worship him. Christ Church, I pray that you can preach this to yourself day in and day out. I love that this is captured in a story. That's not an accident either. We're built to enjoy stories. We're built to remember stories. Chapter 24 is something you can easily talk to your kids about. God did this. God led this servant across the desert and the camels and everything about it. You can remember that story. Why are we supposed to remember that story? It's so that we can believe God more. It's so that we can worship God more. So let this story act like a tool like that. Let this story be fresh in your mind. Replay it over and over and over again. And as you think about it, think about who God is that we're worshiping. Think about the God that you get to believe in this morning. This combats our fear This combats us worrying. This combats disappointment, condemnation, confusion. We can believe God, and then we can worship him. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we love you. 
We praise you. You and you alone are worth our worship. God, I pray, I ask you, please, Lord, help us to believe you more. Help us to see the truth in Scripture that we read and that we heard from. And I pray that by your Spirit, God, that you would transform our hearts to believe you more, to love you and to worship you as a response. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.